Well, good afternoon again. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, as we continue our study there, we have been um, considering this history of the early church on and off since January 28th of 2018. Um, And it looks like we're going to finish up our walk through the book of Acts at the end of July. Um, So I'll be preaching this Sunday and next Sunday, and then Joshua and Jake are going to be preaching um, outside of the book of Acts for about three weeks, well, for three weeks, Lord willing, while I'm in the Philippines. And then after that, um, I plan to pick up the study again that first Sunday in June. We've got a two-week break in end of June, beginning of July, to do a, a couple joint services with Encounter there in the summer. And then we'll wrap up probably just under 50 sermons walking through the book of Acts. So that's the plan. And for that to happen, we're going to have to cover a significant amount of material between now and then. For instance, today we're going to be in Acts 21, 17 through verse 29 of chapter 22, which is a lot. Now, that's not to say that I want to rush through, like we got to finish this up before July. I don't feel like there's a, <laughs> a deadline necessarily. But it has to do with the, the similar themes that are found here at the end of the book. Luke is going to emphasize Paul's innocence um, at a number of trials and interviews that he has. And, and much of the narrative seems to just be getting Paul to Rome. That's sort of the big push and God's sovereignty within that. And so we're going to move fast because that's what the content of Acts is telling us to do. This is a quick journey. Uh, There's no reason to spend as long as Paul did at sea um, in these chapters. So we'll we'll go as quick as the text tells us to. Um, And and some of what we learn, I think, is going to be surprising. And in fact, today, I want us to think on a theme that has sort of that surprising aspect to it. This is a, a little bit longer of a big idea, but it's a longer text, so you have to be gracious with me. Uh, but it's this. Uh, this is what I want us to think about. Plan to be surprised. Plan to be surprised by who opposes the gospel, who is used to further its spread, and how God sovereignly orchestrates his will. So plan to be surprised by three things. One, by who opposes the gospel. Two, by who is used to further its spread. And three, by how God sovereignly orchestrates his will. If there was one big theme word to put over these verses that we're going to look at, and even over the rest of the book of Acts, it's sovereignty. It's it's God's plan unfolding and seeing how he's working in all these different ways. And the encouragement that that can bring to us, that God is sovereignly at work in each and every one of our lives in these ways. And and yet he often works in ways that are surprising. So we should plan to be surprised. Surprised by who opposes the gospel, who is used to further its spread, and how God sovereignly orchestrates his will. Um, there are people, thinking about that, there's people we would expect to gravitate towards the kingdom of God. There's people that we would expect to oppose the kingdom of God. And often we are wrong in what we expect. And there are ways that, um, that we expect God to work around us and in us and through us. And that may not be at all how he works. There may be mundane parts of your life that God is actually using to expand his kingdom. There may be parts of your history, something that happened to you that God is going to use in a unique way someday 
for his glory. And that's, I think, part of what we see here. So plan to be surprised by who opposes the gospel, who is used to further its spread, and how God sovereignly orchestrates his word. His 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 will. So we're gonna we're gonna jump into chapter one twenty one in a minute. But before we do that, just look at at chapter nineteen verse twenty one, and Luke there gives us the travel plan that plays out in the rest of this book. And and we're gonna watch this travel plan unfold. He wrote there. He says now after these events, meaning after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, but before the riot that happened in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul, compelled by the the Holy Spirit, was determined to revisit the churches in Macedonia, after which he wanted to get to Jerusalem with the hopes of making a trip to Rome. And so we've already watched Paul make the first two-thirds of this journey, if you've been with us. Um, last week, we left him in, Mena- or not two weeks ago, we left him in the house of Manasin there in Jerusalem. He had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, like he said he wanted to. And, and we can remember that he persisted in going to Jerusalem, despite the fact that everywhere he went, went people were telling him in every city that suffering and hardship awaited him. And we said that as followers of Jesus, a man who was rejected and crucified, we should also expect to face difficulty and suffering for ourselves and for those that we love. In fact, Luke, at the end of this book, is paralleling uh, his Paul's journey with Jesus's final weeks. And, and there's, there's so many similarities, and it teaches us that the closer we follow Jesus, the more our own stories start to look like his, including suffering and hardship and rejection. There, there are even, if you listen closely in these chapters in particular, chapter 21 and chapter 22, there are echoes of, of Stephen. If you remember back in chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr who was stoned because of his testimony for Christ. And you can be struck by the fact that in this gracious irony of God, that Paul, who had stood by and supported Stephen's stoning, is now saying words similar to the ones Stephen spoke. And he's walking a similar path to the path that Stephen walked as they were both following Jesus. Now, why was this trip so important to Paul? Important enough that he was going to knowingly walk into suffering and difficulty. Why did he need to go to Jerusalem? Well, besides the, his, his heart to follow the leading of the Spirit and his, his passion for the furtherance of the gospel everywhere he went, one of the driving forces for Paul getting to Jerusalem seems to have been this desire to deliver an offering to the church in Jerusalem to be used for famine relief. There was this prophet that we hear twice in the book of Acts, a guy named Agabus. He predicted Paul's sufferings in Acts 22, but he also, back in Acts 11, said that there was a famine coming into Jerusalem. We know about this too in in, um, Galatians 2. The elders in Jerusalem tell Paul as he's doing his, his ministry not to neglect the poor. Knowing what happens in Jerusalem, they probably mean don't forget about us. Don't forget that we're suffering here. And, and do what you can to help us. And so in light of all this, Paul made one of the major focuses of his third missionary journey. We know this mostly from his letters, but one of the major focuses of this, this third missionary journey was gathering relief funds for the church in Jerusalem. Paul was a fundraiser for the church in Jerusalem and for famine relief. 
And the gathering of that relief is significant for two reasons. The first being the difficulty of the task. Why is it significant that Paul got this relief together? Because of how hard it was, the difficulty of that task. Imagine convincing people. I mean, someone calls you on the phone and asks you for money and you're pretty quick to hang up, right? At least I am. I don't know. Maybe you're nicer than me. (laughs) But imagine in the ancient world, you're going around trying to convince people, many of whom are Greek converts to Christianity, and you're trying to tell them to send support to the predominantly Jewish congregation in faraway Jerusalem, where they may have, have never been. And beyond just the communication difficulty, there would have been transportation troubles. Think about how hard it is to transfer money in the ancient world. There's no checks. There's no um, money orders. There's no credit card contributions. Paul has to carry all the money he gets back to Jerusalem. Um, probably loads of coins on roads that were filled with with thieves. And as I was thinking about this, I thought maybe that's why there were so many guys with Paul. Maybe he's got this team that's helping him not only carry it, but offering some protection to make sure no one's stealing it. And maybe that's why Paul, when he decides to walk, does it by himself. Because the rest of the guys say, we're leaving the money on the ship, Paul, because it's a lot easier by boat than it is by walking to take all this, this money. And so you think about the the difficulty of this task in getting money from people, but then the practicalities of getting it to Jerusalem. This was a major effort, a major thing that Paul undertook. The second reason this gathering of relief money is so significant is because of the declaration of unity that it made. So the difficulty of the task and the second reason is the declaration of unity that it made. It uh, It was probably Paul's desire to make this declaration, this, it was this desire of Paul to make a declaration of unity that probably drove him to collect and then deliver these funds. We're going to see later in this chapter that the thought that, that Paul was an anti-law, anti-Jerusalem follower of Jesus is not true. He, he recognized the growing church's indebtedness to the church in Jerusalem as the place where everything had started. That, that's where everything had been birthed out of. And so in asking other churches to support the brothers and sisters in Christ there in Jerusalem that they would never see, and in making all this effort to take this, this offering personally to Jerusalem, he was declaring that the church was not divided. It was not divided by Jew or Gentile or across any other lines that they were the worldwide community of Jesus followers that were willing to sacrifice for the sake of one another. And those who gave, gave seeing the largeness of the body of Christ. And in Jerusalem, those who received started to understand more about the diversity of this family that God had called them into. May that be true of us. As, as we generously give to brothers and sisters in Christ next door and around the world, May our generosity be a declaration of the unity that we have in Jesus. And yet, however deep this unity was, it's not crystal clear to the early church. The church in Jerusalem's response to Paul's visit and and this gift is a mixture of rejoicing at, at what God was doing, but also at uncertainty about how Paul being there is going to be received by the Jews. And despite all their best efforts at promoting peace, their fears about what Paul's presence in Jerusalem would would do 
those fears are in many ways confirmed in chapter 21. And so listen to this account from Acts 21, beginning in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter for now, um, to this account of what happened when Paul got to Jerusalem. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, Luke writes, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one all the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the, the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt? and led the 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, cliffhanger, we'll stop right there. <laughs> um, Verses 17 through 20 show us that, that Paul once again was gathered with James. This is the Lord's brother, the leader of the 
of the church in Jerusalem, along with all the elders in Jerusalem. And at this meeting, uh, he, he did what he had done with Barnabas back in chapter 15 during the Jerusalem council. And he laid out in order all the things that God had done among the Gentiles on his most recent journey. And as he walked through this list, he was emphasizing God's activity. Uh, the report was not an argument for how awesome Paul was, but it was about the greatness of God and what God was doing through Paul and others. And because of that, the result we find in verse 20 is that they all glorified God. Very simple lesson right there for us in how to share the ministry that the Lord gives to us and does through us. That as we talk about God, how, how God works through us as individuals or as families or as a church, we should do it in such a way that it always leads to God's glory and not our own. From there, things moved quickly from rejoicing about what God had done to uncertainty about what Paul's presence in Jerusalem would mean for him and the church. There was this rumor going around the city about Paul that he was teaching with regard to the Jews that, that became Christians, that, that he was discouraging them from continuing any of the Jewish cultural practices, including circumcision, which was not true. That's not what Paul taught. He was clear that Gentiles who became Christians were not required to be circumcised as part of their salvation, but he took no issue with the cultural customs of the Jews as long as they didn't teach that those things were required for salvation. And so James and the others affirm again their agreement with that by restating what they had said back in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, that Gentile converts should be sensitive to Jewish customs and practices, those four things that are listed in verse 25, but that salvation is by faith alone, not adherence to the law. And so because of this, this rumor that's circulating, the church proposes what I would call a, a public relations move for Paul, a, a way to show that this is not what he was teaching. Um, he was to be the sponsor for four men who had taken what appears to be a Nazarite vow. Um, he was going to pay for their haircuts uh, and, so he, and for their purification rites. And he was also to take part in a purification ceremony. And this was to show that Paul wasn't teaching the things he was accused of, that he had no problem with the, the Jewish customs. Uh, we know that he didn't. We know back um, earlier in, in Acts 18, 18, that Paul had taken a vow himself where he got his, his haircut in Sincrea. So he had no problem with these things. And so he was willing to do this to try to, to work with everyone, which sounds like Paul's ministry. This is nothing new. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says about his ministry methods, he says, for, I, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. That's exactly what he's going to do right here. Uh, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Paul's showing us what ministry motivated by love looks like. We, when we're motivated by love, we consider where people are at in their journey towards Christ, and we seek, without compromising the gospel, to do everything that we can to break down barriers and to avoid unnecessary offenses. We love people. We love our enemies. 
We show kindness as a means of communicating the gospel. We become all things to all people in an effort to win some. And that's what Paul is doing here, and that's what the Jerusalem church desires to do. I'm not sure that it's a perfect plan. Acts, you know, everything that they do is not perfect necessarily, but they're doing their best to love the Jewish people and to clearly communicate the truth of the gospel. And so we know it's not a perfect plan because everything didn't go according to their plan, I guess. Um, We find, and here's where I think I want to give you five things to not be surprised by as we're sharing with others. And the first is, is don't be surprised if if you receive evil in return for good. Don't be surprised if you re- receive evil in return for good. Don't, don't be surprised if your desire to love others results in them hating you. Uh, when you bend over backwards to bless others, don't be surprised if they take the opportunity to push you over. <laughs> in verse 27, it looked like everything was going to work out. It was uh, the last day of purification. All, all five guys are about done with this whole thing. Um, but then some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, because they knew Trophimus was an Ephesian, uh, this place where Paul had just done powerful ministry, they saw Paul in the temple and everything just went south. They assumed that because they had seen Paul with this Greek guy, Trophimus, that, that Paul had brought him into the, this inner court of the temple. And if that was true, then Paul would have been in serious trouble because non-Jews were forbidden from entering into that area. And, and this was so important to the Jewish people that the Romans had actually given them the right to, to kill anyone who entered into that inner court. They had the right um, to bring the death penalty on people who came into the, the inner court. And so these men from Asia call out that Paul is, I love what, I mean, it's just amazing how strong their accusation is. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Sounds a lot like what they said Stephen was doing there. Um, And then they say that he brought a, a Greek man, he brought this guy Trophimus into the inner court, which wasn't true. And, and when that happens, this mass confusion arises. This anger spreads through the whole city. Not unlike what happened in Ephesus, except that this time, Paul isn't hidden away. They get their hands on Paul. Uh, and they begin to beat him. And they beat him with the intention of killing him. Just pause and consider that for a moment. This massive crowd surrounds Paul. They grab him. And they want to beat him to death. And they would have. Except this Roman tribune stationed nearby runs in with a group of soldiers and arrests Paul. Everyone stops when he shows up and they arrest Paul. And he tries to figure out what this guy has done wrong, that people are going to kill him. Um, But there's no clear answer from the mob. And so he takes him to the barracks. In fact, they had to carry him. Um, either because the crowd is, crowd is going to grab him and kill him or because he is so beaten that he may not be able to, to walk easily. And away from the crowd, Paul, presumably now you can imagine, he's bloodied, he's in, he's in great pain, and he asks the tribune, he says, can I talk to the people? It's astounding that he is, wants to speak to this crowd. And when he asks, he says it in Greek, which surprises this tribune because this tribune had assumed that Paul was an Egyptian, 
who not long ago had led a revolt, recorded in Josephus. It's something that legitimately happened. But, but Paul said that he was not that guy. He was, in fact, a Jew from the town of Tarsus. And again, contrary to, to what happened in Ephesus, where Paul was not allowed to address the mob, here, Paul's given the chance to speak, and we get to hear what he says. But before we hear what he says, just a second thing that we should not be surprised by as we walk with Christ and as we do ministry and work for him, don't be surprised when people make false assumptions about you and about what you're doing. Don't be surprised when people make false assumptions about you and what you're doing. This is all over this passage, that there's the anger, the, the entire anger in the city against Paul for what he was, this distorted teaching. That's not true. There's uh, the attack based on the fact that he had brought Trophimus into the temple. That's not true. And then this Roman official assumes that he's an Egyptian revolutionary, which was, was not true. And so we should not be surprised when we're accused falsely by those around us or by society at large of doing things that, that aren't what we're doing. When we're misunderstood as Christians, when we're misrepresented but we shouldn't be angry about it either, I don't think. I think rather we should be patient, as Paul seems to be. He's so patient here, and, and he he's trying to clearly and patiently address the concerns of these people that are offended, that are puzzled. He's working hard. He doesn't return evil for evil or shouting for shouting or beating for beating. He's He just wants to communicate clearly what's going on. And so... Paul assumes that if he can just talk, if he can just speak to the crowd, that he can clear up this, this confusion, that he can calm the rioters. And so he's given the opportunity and he motions with his hands, his hand, he speaks their common language. It says Hebrew here. All the commentators say it was probably Aramaic. I don't know why it says Hebrew then, but whatever it was, the language he spoke uh, drew the crowd in. He speaks respectfully to them, calls them uh, we'll see in a minute, brothers and fathers. Um, and he highlights the Jewish heritage and the love for the Jewish people and customs that he had. He really tries to speak in a way to draw this crowd out. He doesn't yell at them or scream at them. He seeks to minister to them. And so listen to what Paul says to this riotous crowd that had just tried to beat him to death. And as you listen, take note of how Paul is masterfully aware of the Jewish audience that he's speaking to. Verse 1 of chapter 22, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And then I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Well, if that story about Paul's conversion sounds familiar. It's because you've already heard it. Luke recorded it back in chapter 9, and we looked at it there, and he's also going to record it in a little bit. We'll see it again in one of Paul's testimonies. And yet in this chapter, we get to hear the story of Paul's conversion from his own lips. It's a first-person narrative. And as he relates it, as he surely had done many times before, he's careful to really relate to his hearers. It's as if he wants to say, I was just like you. Maybe more so, but God saved me. He opened my eyes to who Jesus is, and he can do the same for you. And so he speaks in their common language, not Greek, and he tells of his days in Jerusalem, learning under Gamaliel, of his zeal for God, evidenced by his persecution of the church. He even says, seems to think that there may be some members of the Council of Elders that were, that were there when he asked for the, the papers to go to Damascus, that they understood, they knew who he was. They could bear witness to how zealous he was. He talks about that day on the road to Damascus and he mentions Jesus by name, but it's, it's only in that place that he mention, mentions Jesus by name. He's being very careful not to say something that's gonna cause his audience to really quickly just, just shut him down. Um, it's really obvious in... Um, 
in verse 17 when he says, when I had returned to the temple and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me. He, he doesn't, the name of Jesus is in some of your translations maybe, but it's not there in the text. He just says him. He, he says Jesus one time and he's sort of making sure that they hear him before they reject what he's saying. And so he, he talks and he, he, he connects himself instead to, to Ananias, who's this devout Jew well-spoken of. He speaks of being in the temple, praying. He's, he's, he is dropping that on purpose. When I returned to Jerusalem and was in the temple praying, I was in the temple praying, guys. You know, he's showing that this is who he was and that he um, loves his Jewish heritage. Paul shows us the wisdom of knowing our audience and speaking with, with wisdom to those that we share the gospel with, whether one-on-one or in, in large groups. Not avoiding the hard truths of the gospel, but recognizing what may be difficult for people to understand and trying to present the, the word in a way that is clear and yet also hearable. There's things that may cause people to shut down quickly and not listen to the, to the broader message, and we want to be careful of that while also being careful to say the truth. Paul, in many ways, seems like the perfect guy to speak to this crowd, doesn't he? He was, he was one of them. He understood their zeal and why they would want to kill him. And so he thought maybe that they would listen to him more readily. And yet that's not even the case. In fact, in verses 17 through 21, I think Paul is kind of arguing with Jesus in this vision. That, that Jesus said that the Jews in Jerusalem would not receive his testimony. And he's like, no, they've got to receive my testimony because I'm just like them. But not surprisingly, Jesus was right. Um, Paul's conversion seems to have enraged them all the more. And yet here, it's not so much his conversion as it was his mission to the Gentiles. When he says that word, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles, that's when they lose it and start throwing the dust. Because it's the thought that the Messiah could be sent for both Jews and Gentiles that they could not take in. And so they start shouting him down and they throw their cloaks and they throw dust in the air, maybe because there were no rocks to throw at Paul in that place. Do you think it was wrong for Paul to be wise and diplomatic in his gospel presentation? Is it a positive thing to only mention the name of Jesus once when you're talking about the gospel? I think, it, I think it was wise. I don't think it was wrong of Paul. And I don't think it's wrong for us as long as we don't shy away from the truth, from the reality of, of sin and eternal judgment apart from Christ, from the need of repentance and faith in Jesus alone, from the worthlessness of good works to gain salvation. And yet, even as we're patient and, and wise and try to be smart about how we talk to others about the gospel, here's another thing not to be surprised about. Don't be surprised when the people who seem most likely to hear the truth reject it. Don't be surprised when the people who seem most likely to hear the truth reject it. The Jews on the surface seem to reject Paul's message because of, of racism because of prejudice against the Gentiles. And that was there, but deeper still is a pride that we all can relate to. And it's a pride that assumes that we are the ones approved to be God's people, while others whom we despise for various reasons are not acceptable to him. 
pride in its various forms keeps us from humbly kneeling before Christ, which is what's necessary for salvation. And while there are those that we might expect to respond to the good news of faith, very often they cannot bring themselves to bow before King Jesus, maybe because of who's in King Jesus' kingdom. And in fact, anyone who does bow in repentance and faith, they do it not because of our eloquence and great um, gospel presentation, but they do it because of the, the miracle of salvation, just like what happened to Paul, because God intervenes. And so the Jews rejected the Messiah, Jesus, and they sought to kill Paul, while the Roman allowed him to speak and saved his life multiple times. If you think about this, we can, uh, we can see how, how Paul is, is blessed by the, the Romans. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised. But in another way, don't be surprised when apparent enemies are used to bless you. Don't be surprised when apparent enemies are used to bless you. They're, they were going to flog Paul. There was this vicious whip that was often either left people debilitated for life or killed them. And they were, going, they were getting ready to do it until Paul threw down the ace that he kept up his sleeve often, which was that he was a Roman citizen. And therefore, he was not allowed to be flogged in this way. He wasn't even supposed to be bound. And the tribune's astonished. He says, how did, how did you get this Roman citizenship? Because I had to pay a bribe to get it. But Paul says he's a, a citizen from, from birth. And so we see how um, the enemies of the gospel were used to bless Paul. The Romans saved his life multiple times. They let him speak the gospel. They respected who he was. And they will continue to do that through this chapter. God uses whoever he pleases in the furtherance of his kingdom. And so as you go through life and you, you look and you say, ah, these people will receive the gospel. These people are enemies of the gospel. Recognize that God's sovereignty is, is bigger than some of those categories. And he, he uses and saves whoever he wants. He does whatever he pleases. So we should watch out for that. But I also think as we think about sovereignty of God, just to, another final thing to not be surprised about is that there's this depth of, of, to God's sovereignty that, that means that no person or thing is excluded from being used by God to bless his children or to further his kingdom. And so the last thing I want to say is don't be surprised when God uses the details of your story for his glory and your good. Don't be surprised when God uses the details. Maybe you might even say the mundane or unique or seemingly meaningless details of your story for his glory and your good. As we look at this, it's, it's Paul's upbringing. It's, it's his testimony, his, his ministry. All these things served him. And even here, it's the languages that he was able to speak that gave him opportunities with the Roman tribune or, or with the Jewish leaders because he knew how to speak different languages. His Roman citizenship, which God had ordained he would have either through his father or maybe even through his grandfather, that God gave him that to spare him this, this pain and to give him more open doors. And as I think about that, as we think about God's sovereignty in our life, for each of us, young and old, God, God is shaping us, and he has shaped us to be uniquely used in, in unique and amazing ways. Your personal desires and drives, your talents and abilities, the gifts that the Spirit has given you, the place you were born, the languages you know how to speak, 
And all these other details are things that God can use to further his kingdom through you. As I was thinking about this, I I started the story that came to my mind related to, uh, to Nate and Heather Wolf, who were just with us. And I remember Nate talking about how uh, the uniqueness of, in God's kindness, that Heather, who had um, done ballet through high school, was very committed to being a ballerina um, and had a dream of that, and, and left that all behind when she was in high school, that as they moved into Africa and were in different areas, that the Lord started to open up doors for her to use ballet as a means of connecting with people and sharing the gospel. I guarantee that when she was 14, 15, 16 years old doing ballet, she had no intention of going, no, no thought maybe of going to Africa and using this as an opportunity to share the gospel. And yet that was what the Lord opened up for her. And so I just, as I think about all these different details in Paul's story that the Lord used to open different doors for him or to uh, help him in his ministry, who knows? Who knows what, what happened in your life or wh- how God is currently shaping your, or kids, things that you're interested in that maybe one day God's going to use for his glory. You could just go around the room and we could talk about different things. You know, Ken's love for soccer or, or Joshua's ability at computer programming or um, Russell, who can start businesses like that, you know, or Keith's basketball skills, you know. There's so many different things that we have that the Lord can use. As I mentioned, Keith's basketball skills, the Lord has used that as he was able to go to to Africa again and to use that. Isn't that amazing how God uses all these details? And he's doing that with with Paul. And so I've said a lot of different things and we've read a lot of of scripture, but I think this, this theme of sovereignty is what is written over this to remember that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases and he does whatever he pleases with us. And sometimes we're, we have a way that we're thinking and we're surprised when he does something unique. And so I just want to remind you, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that God's going to use the details of your story, that God's going to use enemies, that God's uh, maybe not going to use the people that we expect or draw them to faith, but that he's at work. God is with us and he can turn even the evil meant against us for our good and for his glory. And so this is a call, I think, to trust him and to not be frustrated, to, to look for his hand. And as Paul exemplifies here, to, to just be patient, to be calm, be ready to speak and know that God can work in different ways and that God may work in ways that we never expect. God's going to work in Paul's life by sending him to prison and by having him arrested by the Romans. That's how he's going to work in God's life. So don't be surprised at all the different ways that God can work in and through us. As I was thinking about how to um, how to kind of bring a close to this thought, I thought... You know, actually the responsive reading that we did for our assurance of forgiveness, if you have your bulletin, would be a great thought to, to close with. Let me just do it just like it's written there. I'll read the leader part and then read, this, uh, read the bold part with me uh, from Romans eight twenty eight through 32. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so I invite you to head into this week um, looking for God's sovereignty and ready to be surprised by it, ready to be surprised at how he can use you and what he's going to do um, through your life to further his kingdom and to draw people to him. Let's take a moment of, of silence and then I will uh, close this in prayer and we'll sing a song together.